The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. You'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 9, verses 14 through 17 this morning. It's on page 814 if you're using the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 9 and verses 14 through 17. Let's give good attention to this, the public reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. We bless you and praise you for your word this morning. Gracious and loving Father, we're so thankful to be able to receive it again, and we ask that as we do that you would come to us, come and bless us, Father, like seed that falls upon good soil, grant that we might receive with meekness that implanted word which is able to save our souls. Indeed, work your saving grace in each of our hearts this day. Please come, we pray, anoint the lips of the preacher and the ears of the hearers, and work by your word and all of us to sanctify us as your people for the glory of your great name in our lives. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning, I'd like you to imagine what it would be like if you were to be invited to be special guests, honored guests at a royal wedding, a royal wedding. Maybe I think of the wedding of of Prince William, since likely before long, he'll be the next king over all of the United Kingdom. What if you'd been there, present, back in April 2011, there at Westminster Abbey, as he was married to Catherine Middleton? There you were, a privileged member there in the midst of the royal family. I don't know about you, but if I were there, I'd probably be on pins and needles thinking I'm going to do something, commit some terrible faux pas, and embarrass myself terribly. But certainly I'd be thinking much about what's expected. How do you act in this kind of context? What conduct uh, would be appropriate in that unique context? Well, in some ways, I think that's, that's what our passage before us is about today. What kind of behavior was appropriate for those who were uh, participating in that unique event, the arrival of the bridegroom king, the arrival of the Messiah who is now present with his people? How were the disciples of Jesus to be conducting themselves in that unique context? In our text, we see that they were kind of being criticized in a way for the way that they were conducting themselves. And the disciples of John the Baptist came and, and asked this question. It's interesting, I think somewhat sad and strange, really, that the, the disciples of John in this 
context were sort of uniting with the, the Pharisees in opposition over against the disciples of Jesus by asking this question in verse 14, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? But we see that that question provided an occasion for Jesus to address not only what kind of behavior was appropriate for his disciples during that unique time, his time with them on earth, but it was an occasion to speak more generally, I think, uh, more generally to the, the greatness of the event, the greatness the significance of the arrival of the kingdom, to speak of the greatness of him, the Messiah King. Of course, that's what Matthew's gospel is all about. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, he's the Christ. And so it was an occasion then for him to speak about how his arrival and his presence brought significant or had significant implications regarding how his kingdom people were to conduct themselves. That included what kind of differences, what kind of changes would be appropriate given his arrival. Our message this morning is this, it's a bit of a mouthful, that in answering his disciples, uh, in answering why his disciples were not fasting or mourning, Jesus teaches us about redemptive historically context-appropriate conduct. Now, children, what on earth do I mean by redemptive historically context-appropriate conduct? Conduct. Well, it's, it's kind of a fancy way of saying that Jesus is teaching us about understanding what time it is and where we are and how to behave properly, conduct ourselves properly given that understanding. As an example, where are we right now? What time is it and where are we? Well, we're here in worship, aren't we? This is not the time to be running around and playing games the way we might in another context. No, this is the time to sit and listen and joyfully enter into the worship of God's people. Well, as God's people, we are to understand the time and the place where we are, when we are in history, redemptive history, and understanding that we are to conduct ourselves appropriately. This morning, I have just two main points. First, we'll consider how Christ's uh, earthly ministry, the time of Christ's earthly ministry, was not a time for fasting and mourning but, for a time, it, but it was a time for rejoicing in his presence. And then secondly, we'll consider that, that he had come not simply to patch up the old, but to usher in the new. So consider our first point then, Christ's earthly ministry, not a time for fasting and mourning, but for rejoicing in his presence. I'm being intentional about my use of that word, not only fast, but mourn or mourning. Notice that Interestingly, here Jesus was asked in verse 14 about fasting. Why do your disciples not fast? And he answers in verse 15 with the word mourn. It's interesting that of the three gospels which seem to record this very same event, Matthew's is the only gospel that uses that word mourn. In fact, Matthew uses that, that word mourn or mourning more than any other gospel writer. It's one of the Beatitudes we considered back in chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Good for us to think again today a little bit about mourning, mourning. But whether or not fasting entails mourning, it seems at least often to be an important component of it. And so it was an important part of the reason that, that fasting would have been out of place in this particular context. Now, in fairness to the disciples of John the Baptist, we can 
perhaps understand why they might have thought they had good reason to be mourning in this context. John was in prison at this time. Perhaps their fasting involved significant uh, mourning. That sad fact, and perhaps they even struggled to understand why the disciples of Christ and even Jesus himself would not be joining them in that fasting and mourning, mourning the imprisonment of the great prophet, mourning the fact that their beloved teacher was suffering in prison. Perhaps there were other less godly motives at play. Uh, We know of another occasion, John chapter 3, where it it seems that the the disciples of John were envious of the disciples of Jesus and Jesus, when all of the people, you recall, began going to them to be baptized rather than uh, to be baptized by John. In that context, John taught his disciples not to be envious, or Jesus, John taught his disciples not to be envious of Jesus, even as Pastor Hulse prayed this morning, I think, in the uh, the prayer of invocation, he taught his disciples that he wasn't envious of Jesus, that it was, it was joy, his joy to see Jesus increase while he decreased. Perhaps part of what was going on in this text is that his disciples, some of them had not properly learned that lesson. One other thing I'll mention, as I suggested back when we considered our Lord's teaching on fasting, chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Uh, I said then that Jesus did not abolish the practice of fasting. He did not there, nor does he here, teach that his disciples will never fast. But some have suggested, this is a point made by one commentator, R.T. France, that perhaps the practice of John's disciples was like that of the Pharisees and different from the disciples of Jesus in this way, that John's disciples had a a more of a a regular routine of fasting. It seems that was the practice of the Pharisees. We know from Luke chapter 18, verse 12, that they fasted twice per week. That, by the way, went beyond anything required by the law of God. And so in contrast with that, the suggestion suggestion is that, that the fasting of which Christ commended for his disciples was more of an occasional fasting rather than routine or weekly fasting. I'd be careful in saying that. I wouldn't want to suggest that anyone who has adopted a practice of routine fasting that you're wrong in doing so. I would repeat this morning what I said back in chapter 6. In fact, I cited some words by J.C. Ryle. And these, I think, are words which are He was speaking about whether or not to fast. I think these are words helpful not only with respect to the question of whether or not to fast, but how to fast, whether to fast by routine or on occasion. But Ryle wrote that to do so should be left to personal discretion, that it should be a matter in which everyone must be persuaded in his or her own mind. He also said, and I'll repeat these words as well, one thing must never be forgotten. Those who fast should do it quietly, secretly, and without ostentation, not not for show, right? And to that point, as we look at our text this morning, I think we could say this. Even if the disciples of Jesus had been called to fast during his earthly ministry, well, if they were doing it, doing so according to the command of Christ, then the disciples of John the Baptist should not have known whether or not they were fasting. You can see the point here. Jesus could quite rightly could have responded by saying, why would you even presume to know whether or not my disciples 
are fasting. When my disciples fast, they will fast not to be seen by you or any man, but to be seen by my Father in heaven. Jesus could have made that point, but I believe the point he makes or made was an even more important point, a redemptive historical point, a redemptive historical distinction he was making. That is that the, the ministries of John the Baptist and Christ really were of two different periods, two different kind of phases in redemptive history as God's uh, redemptive historical plan was being carried out. John's ministry was in that, that period of preparing and waiting for the arrival of the kingdom. His, his ministry was the culmination of that, that period of longing for the coming of the kingdom as you prepared the way for the Christ and had the privilege of announcing his coming. And very appropriate to that time was fasting and mourning. We can think about how the, the nation, the covenant-breaking nation, should rightly have been mourning the, the fact that it was their sin that brought the kingdom to its tragic end, as it were, at least at the end of the kingdom in its old covenant form, or as it had come to its expression in the old covenant. So on one level, we can say, understand why there were, there were notable differences between the ministry of John the Baptist, the life and ministry of John the Baptist, and that of Jesus, the way he lived and ministered. That, that, that difference, I think, will be reflected when we come to chapter 11 and we consider these words of Jesus where he points out that John came neither eating nor drinking. By contrast, he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Christ's opponents came to a wrong conclusion about what that meant. Nonetheless, Jesus was, I think, saying it was true. He ate and he drank in ways that John did not, not because he was a glutton, not because he was a drunkard, of course not. But I believe our our, our text teaches us that, that as John's ministry concluded and the Christ had arrived and was present, there was a difference. This was a special Time. This was a time. This was a time for rejoicing, a special time for rejoicing in the truth that the Lord had come. The Lord had come as the great bridegroom who would receive his people as his bride. God was now fulfilling the promises. Those promises spoken by the prophets, Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Uh, another verse, Hosea chapter six, 62, verses 4 and verse 5, and notice the, the rejoicing language. It says, the prophet said, and you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. See the language of rejoicing here. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your god rejoice over you your god was saying i've come to rejoice and in seeing that this should have been a special time of rejoicing as jesus was was rightly uh, claiming, I am the fulfillment of those promises. I am the great bridegroom, bridegroom, Messiah, King. Brothers and sisters, is that not cause for rejoicing this morning? Rejoicing in, in, in who Christ was. Glorying, rejoicing in God's holy name as we think of the wonderful way 
in which he fulfilled his promises. You know, if, if the Lord calls us to rejoice in all of the wondrous deeds that he has done, we can certainly think about that great event. I'm sure Pastor Hulse wouldn't disagree if I said even greater than the temple was when God himself came. Emmanuel, God with us, he came and he dwelt among us. What a glorious time for rejoicing. What a, what a glorious wedding celebration indeed. In those days and in that culture, we know that a wedding event could last for several days. And those festivities were not festivities involving fasting and mourning. No, there was joy and celebration and all that took place. And that's why it's such a wonderful, such a fitting image to represent the kingdom of heaven and with the, with the, the, the presence of Christ, the great kingdom, the kingdom had come. And so it was really sad. It was sad and it was wrong that these disciples of John would be looking at the disciples of Jesus and, and, and be bothered by the fact that they were in, uh, rejoicing and in joy and celebration. It was inappropriate for them to come and suggest, now this should be a time for fasting and mourning. If we could think back to the, the Prince William wedding illustration, just imagine if you were there as an honored guest. Imagine if you were there at the, the lunchtime reception at Buckingham Palace and they're serving all of these amazing, talk about high-end foods, but when they come around to serve you something, you say, you know, no thanks, I'm, I'm fasting today. What would people think? I would think that anyone who heard that might think, is this person out of his or her mind? You chose today of all days to fast. Do you realize where you are? Do you realize the magnitude of this event? Do you realize that you're in the presence of royalty? You don't refuse to enter into the joy, the celebration. You don't refuse their food. And I think the problem with the disciples of John was perhaps not, not that they saw, brought such a terrible question if they were simply wanting to come and, and learn some things about fasting. I think uh, it would have been fine to do that. I think that the problem perhaps was that they were not perceiving the greatness, the magnitude of the events which were unfolding before their eyes. They did not rightly learn from their own teacher, John the Baptist, they didn't perceive the greatness of the person who was in their midst. And we do well this morning to think much about how our, our text reveals his greatness, the supremacy of Christ. They should have perceived his greatness and they should have entered into the celebration and been rejoicing in his presence, the great bridegroom, Messiah King, who had come. Jesus made it clear that there would be a time for mourning, and we'll think about that in connection with our second point this morning. But our second point is that Christ had come not simply to patch up the old, but to make all things new. And so we see in verses 16 and 17 that he makes this point using some metaphors from, from things that were common to the uh, experience of most people in his day. People knew about making and mending garments and they knew about making wine. In making or mending garments, one would have to full the new cloth. This was a, a process whereby they would remove the natural oil and the gum, and they would bleach the, the cloth, and it would shrink the cloth and make it ready for use. 
Well, everyone knew that if you took an unfold or unshrunk piece of cloth and you used it to sew over the the hole of uh, of an old garment, then with time that unshrunk cloth would shrink up and it would tear the hole. It would make it even worse. Jesus also spoke about wine. In those days, they would... They would take wine and they would put it in animal skins while it was fermenting. And so after time, those skins would become hard. They'd become brittle and they would crack. Presumably, you would drink up the wine before that happened or at least put it in another container so you wouldn't lose it. Well, when you made new wine then, of course, you would never put it in old, wine, old uh, animal skins. If you did, they'd crack. You'd lose the wine. Well, what's our Lord's point here? His point was that in bringing the kingdom. He had not, he had not come as a, a piece of new cloth to be used to sort of patch up, to kind of give minor repair to the old covenant. He had not come as, as new wine to be poured into the old wineskins of those old covenant ordinances. He certainly had not come to, to, to conform to practices which were not even according to God's law, but which were based on human traditions rather than the true commandments of God. But even more than that, even more than that, Jesus had come not not in order to preserve even those legitimate practices of the old covenant, those ones which were intended to be temporary and which would pass away. It's interesting, isn't it? He, again, Jesus he, he could have he could have rebuked John the Baptist's disciples. He could have rebuked them the way he could rebuke the Pharisees for, for not properly following God's law, but instead for inventing human traditions, commandments which were contrary to God's law, setting up legalistic rules about fasting and so forth, rules which, with, which uh, went beyond God's law. We know that Je- Jesus did do that on other occasions. He did uh, uh, condemn, rebuke such perversions of God's law. But here, his focus was not on perversions of the old. His focus was on the significance of the new. His point seems to be that it, it would not be right to think that you could take him, that you could take Christ and sort of conform him to the old, the old covenant ordinances. So this text really speaks to the greatness, the greaterness, the supremacy of Christ, the newness of the age which Jesus had brought, the greatness of that, the, 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 the kingdom which had come with, the, the, with, uh, with, with his coming and the dawning of the new covenant age. Jesus was bringing this greater, fuller revelation of the grace of God. With the inauguration of the new covenant, there would be appropriate changes God's people were not to resist those changes. They were to joyfully submit, conform to those changes. Of course, we know that the the ceremonial law would would pass away. There would be no more animal sacrifices. John's disciples heard him announce, this is the the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And once he'd offered that once and for all sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, they would no longer be slaughtering bulls and goats. We know that the, the, the Passover meal wonderfully would be transformed into the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. So in thinking about all of this, we can appreciate all of this, the rich, redemptive historical context in which Christ, his person, and his work was revealed. But if, if, we do, if we're able to do that, if we're able to perceive 
the greatness of Christ, we should perceive how this has such significant implications for how we are to esteem him and view him, embrace him, receive him, what kind of impact he should have on each of our lives. Friends, how do you, did you view Christ this morning in your own life? Do you see, see Christ as someone who kind of comes alongside you to do a, a bit of patch-up work in your life, Right? Maybe makes some minor repairs, fixes what's torn, broken a bit. Jesus comes along and he helps you to continue to be a slightly better you. Brings some improvement as your life continues to be a life which is essentially oriented around yourself. You live your life as if you're the supreme one, right? A life of living is... Uh, as if you're supreme and you are to follow your own purpose, your own plans, your own will, your own desires, pursuing your own glory. And Jesus kind of helps you do that. Is that the way you view Christ this morning? So not basically what the disciples of John were doing, I think. Maybe I'm being too hard on them this morning. It's possible. I'm misunderstanding them, but I think the point is still worth making, kind of saying, we, we have our well-established patterns of fasting, Jesus. Why don't your disciples conform? Why don't you conform to us what we're doing? Jesus was basically saying, you don't understand who I am. I don't conform to you. That's not the way this works. To the, extent that, to the extent that we do that to Jesus in our own lives, we do well to hear him say to us this morning, that's not the way it works. I don't conform to you. It's your joy, it's your privilege to conform to me, to my ways. I'm the great one. I am the supreme one. I am the great bridegroom, Messiah, King. And if you are able to perceive my greatness and my glory, then yes, you will, you will conform unto me and to my ways. When we, underst- when we understand that, we understand that, that Christ is not one who simply comes along and patches up the old. He's the one who comes and he does completely away with the old and he creates the new. He does that in each of our lives if we come to him truly, right? The old self-centered, self-serving, selfish you, that one is put to death and he raises up the new you, that one in union with Christ, the one united with Christ in his death and resurrection. He raises up that you knew, that new you whose life is in him and whose life then is oriented towards him, towards his glory, towards his supremacy, a life given to the cause, uh, to the cause of, uh, of pursuing his glorious purposes and plans. Friends, this morning, I, I, I hope that you and I know very well that that's the way we ought to view Christ. That's the Jesus whom we are each called to follow in our lives. I wonder if there are any here this morning who, in truth, have no understanding of that. You've never truly seen the greatness, the glory, the supremacy of Christ, because in truth, you don't know Christ this morning. You've never come to the true saving knowledge of him. You've never committed your life to him, and so you are yet on that self-serving path of living for yourself, and it's a path that will lead to destruction. Friend, why would you continue living that way? Why would you continue on that path when here Jesus this morning shows you his greatness, his glory, and graciously invites you to come? Come to him. He reveals to you that he is a savior who receives sinners. He came uh, to, to, to die on the cross to save sinners just like you. And if you would 
put your trust in him, if you would look to him, if you would believe that he died to pay for all of your sins so that you could be forgiven and so that you could have new life, even eternal life with him forever and ever, if you would believe that, if you would turn to him in truth, then you will be saved. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ, the great bridegroom king, he invites you to come and to be his bride, Jesus, the one who came. And in dying and rising from the dead, he gave himself holy for us so that we would be holy his. He gives, us, gives himself not just to be patches of new cloth to sew over our old filthy Garments. No, Christ comes and he, he takes away all of our sins, all of our filthy garments, and he, he clothes us in those rich robes, even his own righteousness. He makes us to drink that sweet wine, the wine of the new covenant in his own blood. He gives us life so that we might give ourselves living holy as his until that day when he comes and he takes us home to glory. And we long for that. We long for that day, do we not? And it's in that hope then that we, we gladly surrender him to him as Lord over our lives, Lord over everything. Yes, Lord, even over our perspectives on mourning and fasting. As I mentioned, it's not that there would be no more fasting in the new covenant age. If you look again at, at verse 15, Jesus makes it clear, doesn't he? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. What is it which is in view here? Is Jesus speaking to that, that brief time? It is his crucifixion and his burial. His disciples would be mourning indeed, mourning his tragic death, confused, not understanding, but certainly mourning until that, that third day when he, would be, uh, when he would be raised from the dead. Perhaps that's what's in view. Perhaps this is a reference uh, to the time after the resurrection and ascension. Once Jesus had returned to the Father and was no longer physically present with his disciples, surely they would miss him. And surely then, I would say fasting and mourning would be appropriate. And it would certainly in large part be uh, fasting and mourning, which would be done with, out of a longing for his return, a longing to be with him once again, I think we can all agree on that this morning, can't we, Christians? We may have some differences about our practices of fasting or even, even mourning, perhaps. We all agree that, that all that we do, and certainly our fasting and our mourning, should be Christ-centered fasting and mourning. All that we do, our fasting and our mourning, it should all be in view of the fullness of his revelation, his finished work, his, his death, his resurrection. And as with all of the Christian life, it should be done out of a hope of his coming again. We fast and mourn with a longing, a longing to see Christ, a longing to be with our Savior in glory forever and ever. Is that true of you? Is it true in your life this morning? Dear Christian, well, what causes you to mourn in your life? Maybe you're mourning because you've lost a loved one, or maybe you're mourning because of other difficult circumstances. Maybe you mourn because someone has done something to deep, deeply hurt you. Maybe you are mourning just looking at all of the, 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 the terrible evil in this wicked world, and we mourn over that. 
and we mourn over the fact that, that we're part of the problem in the sense that we have that ongoing sin. We mourn over our own sin. Are you mourning over these things? We ought to mourn. We ought indeed to mourn, but let our, our mourning be a, always be mourning, which is unto Christ, and let it always be in wonderful hope, hope that Jesus is, is coming again. He's coming again. And he's coming not simply to patch things up a little bit. No, he's coming to put an end to all of the sin, all of the sorrow, all of the misery of this broken, sin-cursed world. He's coming to make all things new as he brings his kingdom and all of its glory. He's coming again that we might be with him. That's what he promised his Disciples, as they were, their hearts were filled with sorrow in, in that great upper room discourse when he told them he would soon be leaving them, he would depart from them. But he said in John 14, verse 3, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. He's coming again. He's coming again that our sorrow, our mourning may be no more as he wipes away every tear from our eyes and we in that hope do do we not look up to the heavens and we say yes that's what we desire yes come lord jesus come you know, friends this morning we we don't have to imagine that we are invited guests guests at some great royal wedding we have been invited we have been made to participate in the great wedding wedding of the kingdom of heaven we we, we are the honored guests we are the bride aren't we you and I were not there during that unique, special time when the king was here, present with his disciples on earth. But in union with him, it's all part of our story. It's all who we are in Christ. And it's the story of what will soon be when the great bridegroom king, our savior, when he comes again, when he returns from heaven in glory, and he, he takes us to be with him forever and ever, that will be greater than anything his disciples experienced with him here on earth. And though he's now separate from us, he's now with us by his spirit. Yes, we mourn, but we never mourn without hope. We always mourn while rejoicing. Sorrowful, Paul wrote. Sorrowful, but what? But always rejoicing. That's our experience in Christ, he's coming again. The Spirit is now working to prepare us for the great wedding day. He's working to, to sanctify us and make us beautiful as he prepares us for that great day. Dear brothers and sisters, think much on that, meditate on that, and so turn to him and, and trust him and follow him and treasure him and submit to him all of your life. Yes, your mourning and your fasting, all that you do, live those beautiful lives uh, by the grace of Jesus Christ. May God help us to do just that. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would come and, and do that work in us, your people. We pray that you would cause us more deeply this morning to trust and treasure our blessed Savior. Lord, would you uh, come and work by your Spirit and, and, and work uh, through your Word. Cause it to fill us. Cause it to dwell in us. Lord, we pray that thereby we might, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring wonderful fruit, uh, bring forth fruit in our lives by which the, the Father would be glorified in the Son. Oh, Lord, uh, please... Uh, 
take and, and, and conform us more into the, the likeness, the image of Jesus Christ. In our fasting, in our mourning, in all that we do, may our lives be lived for the glory of your great name. For we ask for this in his name. Amen.